Well, if you see a little 11-month-old girl walking around this room, that's probably my daughter, Eden Hope. And uh, I'm proud that now she's kind of walking around. It's kind of the new milestone. So she turns one year old in a week and a half. So she's about to be a year old. That'll be fun. Not that that changes anything, just to be honest. It's like, you know, birthdays for kids. It's like, yeah, there you go. I mean, congratulations, they're a year old. But, uh, you know, they're still kind of the same person. Just like when people ask you, like we talked about Austin, how do you, how do you feel now that you're older? It's like, well, not that much different. But the big change for her is not actually her turning one year old. The big change for her is that that girl can walk now. And when babies start walking, everything changes. And I mean everything. It was like she started standing up, and you should have seen her. When she stood up, it was hilarious. Like she'd kind of have her feet really wide. She'd be kind of in a surfing stance, and she'd be kind of feeling back and forth. And then most of the time, she'd just roll back and fall on her backside. And she learned actually how to fall really well. So if you ever see her walking, and you're like, oh, is she going to be okay? She always falls. She's like a cat, right? She always falls the right way, I guess. Um, but now she's starting to walk. And now that everything's changed, she's walking. It's actually kind of fun because I'm expecting her now to like, okay, she can walk. I know she can walk from this part of the room to that part of the room. So sometimes I'll get on the other side and say, hey, Eden, come here, come here. Can you walk here? And then if she ever gives up, Sometimes she's tired. She'll go back down to crawling. But my big thing now is, like, I want her to just keep walking because I know she knows how to do it. She's taking steps. I know she can keep doing it. I want to have some realistic expectations. I'm not, you know, expecting her to walk for too long. But she can walk for 10 or 20 feet. And I'm, like, always trying to push her to the next level because I know she can do it. Um, it would be really sad for her if she started walking and she could take a few steps and she knew how to stand up. But all of a sudden, she reverts back to crawling. Right, that would actually be a sad thing. And if she did it for a month, that might be one thing. But if she did it for a year, that would be a really bad thing. She wouldn't be getting stronger, and she would actually be going backwards, not forwards. Now, I bring all this up to just remind you that the Christian life is described as a walk. And what we do at the beginning of our Christian lives is we learn how to walk. The problem is for many people who are sitting in chairs just like you, people who go to youth group, people who hear some Bible teaching as a high school student, what they do is they stand up just like Eden, they learn to take a couple steps, and then they never walk again. And that's something that's a constant fear of mine for you. I don't want that to be true. The way Jesus put that in the Gospels is, it's like when people have a, a hard heart, they hear the Gospel, some people receive it, and they bear a little bit of fruit at the beginning, but their fruit doesn't last. And it turns out that they never really trusted in Christ in the first place. The reason we're studying the Bible every week together is because I want you and your Christian life to be established. I want you to learn how to take steps in the Christian life, and I want you to continue to grow and be stronger and stronger as you go along. In fact, one of the, one of the main reasons we chose this book of Ephesians is because it's all about that. Now, we've done 10 sermons from the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're going to the, the second half of the book. So we've done three chapters. Three chapters is 76 verses in the last uh, 10 sermons. We have like 80-something more verses to go in this book, and it's going to take us all the way to the end of the year. So really, we've just made it through the first third of the sermons, even though we've made it through half of the book. And that's because in the second half of the book, we're going to slow down and take a slower pace to try to get every word exactly right and try to understand what God has us do. Because what happens is whenever Paul writes a letter, just like the book of Ephesians, he'll write a lot at the beginning about who they are in Christ. He writes a lot about how he's praying for them. But then there comes a time in the, in the book that kind of shifts over to saying, hey, this is who you are, but now I want to remind you what your Christian life should look like. That's why our series is called New Life, uh, because this is what it's going to look like to live the new Christian life. This is how it's going to look, what we're about to talk about in Ephesians chapter 4. So please grab a Bible and look together with me 
at Ephesians chapter 4. We check this out together. We just finished this prayer that Paul prayed, which is interesting. It's a good reminder for us. He does not tell them how they should live until he first prays for them which is kind of nice because if you're ever dealing with people um, who are like, trying to help you or counsel you or maybe your parents or a mentor or maybe a small group leader, it's really helpful to know that they actually care about you before they start telling you what to do, right? And that's what he does. He shows his care, he prays for them, and then he makes this turn right at Ephesians 4.1, the verse we're going to look at first, and now he says, okay, now after everything I've said, now everything I've prayed for, here are some to-do lists. Now, if you're a person who likes lists and you're a person who likes, you know, very structured, like this is what I should do, you're going to like Ephesians chapter 4 because he tells us so much about the Christian life. Look what he says first. Ephesians 4.1. He says, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Just remember, he's in jail. He already mentioned that a couple sermons ago in chapter 3. He says he's a prisoner. I urge you. That word urge is the same word as to encourage. Literally what it means is to come alongside of and help. Like that's what I do with Eve. When she walks, I have to not just say, hey, walk. Hey, get up, get up, walk. I have to sometimes come alongside her, lift her up, and hold her hand and walk with her. This word, urge, if you see it in your, your text here, urge, what it means is to come alongside of and to like hold someone's hand and help them through it. So he says, here's what I'm going to come alongside you and urge you to do. Check it out. It says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Okay, so what does that mean? He's saying, I want you to walk, but I want you to walk in a certain way. Uh, the book of Ephesians says that everybody walks. Remember in chapter two, it said uh, that people, naturally, they just walk according to the course of the world. They follow the prince of the power of the air. So everybody walks, but not everybody walks worthy. And not every Christian in this room or in any room, not all of them walk worthy. Right, that's an important topic that we're going to get into later, but this concept of worthy, what the word actually means is it, it, it's used whenever you're talking about scales. So those old-fashioned scales, uh, they're different than the electronic scales we have, right? For the true coffee bar, we just put the little uh, portafilter on a scale, and it just tells us how many grams it is, right? Um, what you used to do back in the day is you would have a, a middle beam, and then you had two little pockets where you'd put stuff on either side. If you wanted to see how much something weighed, you would take a measure. Let's say it was a 100-gram measure on one side. You would start to add 100 grams on the other side so that those two things would even out. Okay? The word worthy means to have the, the two sides of the scale balance out. Now, what are on the two sides? One side is the calling to which you've been called. On the other side is the way that you walk or your lifestyle. So here's the question that Paul poses to them. And I want to pose to you, do you actually live like a Christian? Like if you took your life and your attitudes and your words and your actions and everything you do, and if I put all that on a scale, right? And I want you to imagine that. And on the other side, I have what God calls you to do. The high schooler that God calls you to be. The attitudes that God calls you to have with your parents. The um, thankfulness that God calls us to have as Christians. Put that all on the other side. Now, weigh those two up. Which one's heavier? Which one's lighter? Do they balance up? Paul's telling them, balance them up. How do you balance them up? We don't balance them up by taking away things that God calls you to do, right? We can't do that. We can't say, oh, you know, God calls us to obey our parents and calls us to, you know, honor our elders. Let's just take some of those things off the scale so that my life will balance up. That's what most people do. Or what they do is, instead of putting God's call in on the other side, they start making lateral comparisons. They put other people's lives. Well, at least I'm better than this person. Or at least I'm better than that person. And, you know, my life kind of balances up with the rest of the crowd. 
that's not what he tells us to do. What Paul's going to tell all of us to do as Christians is we need to raise the standard of our life so that we walk according to the way that God calls us to walk. That's verse 1. Then you might say, wow, that's really hard. Well, it is really hard. Uh, How is that even possible? Does everyone have discrepancies? Yes, I want to remind you, every Christian in this room has an inconsistency between what God calls them to do and how they actually live. No one measures up perfectly other than Christ himself. So the idea is we're supposed to close the gap. That's what it looks like to be sanctified, to keep closing the gap between what God calls us to be and how our lives actually are. So keep closing up the gap. You might say, how do we do that? Look at verse number two. He says we should do this with all humility. Right? You, you don't understand the idea of, of being humble, right? It's like uh, you don't think so highly of yourself. You don't think that you're great. Uh, you don't have a sense of self-righteousness. Uh, you don't think that I'm better than everybody else or than making lateral comparisons. Humility doesn't do any of that. What else does he say? He says with all gentleness. Gentleness is actually the same word as Jesus uses in the Gospels, uh, the meekness that he talks about. So this is uh, ability to have whatever power you have to, to keep it under control so that you can be helpful in guiding and loving other people. Right? That's gentleness. Um, the opposite of flying off the handle. The opposite of being out of control. Right? Gentleness really is really connected to the idea of self-control. What's next? He says, with all patience. Right, so three characteristics he gives. He says, here's how you do it. Here's how you walk worthy. Uh, you're humble, and then you're gentle, and then you're patient. If all of us just took those three words, and I said, how patient are you? How gentle are you? How humble are you? All of us, in all three of those areas, we all fall short, but we fall short to varying different degrees. Paul says, walk worthy. Take those things and say, I'm going to live like that. I'm going to be more humble. I'm going to be more patient grow in those areas. Those are three characteristics, humble, gentle, and patient. But then he gives two actions. You see the first action is in the middle of verse two. What does it say? Uh, Bearing with one another in love. That's not a characteristic, that's an action, okay? So three characteristics, humble, gentle, patient. And then two actions. Action one is be bearing with one another in love. That literally means it's like to carry with other people or another translation says to put up with others. Now, you might start to understand, okay, to put up with others. That's great. Um, That means I just put up with them. I just tolerate them. I don't really like them very much. uh, But you know what? I just just put up with them. I tolerate them. That's actually not what the passage says. Because remember, it doesn't just say bear with one another. Because that just means to put up with them. Look Look what motive should motivate your putting up with other people. Put up with one another in love. So without a fakeness, which is so common, right, in church and youth group, people say, oh, yeah, I love you, I care about you, but it's all fake behind it. He says, no, 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 do it from real love. Do it from real care for one another. And then the second thing he calls you to, verse number three, says eager, which another word for eager is to make every effort. So he's saying do something. What is he telling us to do? Eager to maintain or to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So we should keep unity in our church, for the sake of peace, right? We should bear with one another in love. And our life should be characterized by three words. Humility, gentleness, and patience. How does it look like to walk worthy? That's how it looks like to walk worthy, okay? So we're only covering three verses today because that's all we can really cover because, I mean, really, we could preach this sermon every week and we would still have room to grow. Uh, but the main point is, from this morning, I want you to look at this text and then look at your life and then say, okay, Where are the inconsistencies? Because we all have them. None of you are as patient as you need to be. 
None of you are as gentle as you need to be. None of you are as humble as you need to be. So what I want to do is, with all those things in mind, what, what are the gaps between what God calls us to and what our life actually looks like? And then our goal is to close up those gaps. Three ways to do that. First of all, um, for point number one, I want you to write this down for point number one. Uh, pinpoint ways that you don't live like a Christian. Pinpoint ways that you don't live like a Christian. Uh, and the reason I'm using that word a Christian is because that's the standard. Right? If I said, hey, what does it look like to talk like a Christian? You could probably tell me. What does it look like to uh, have respect for parents and for teachers like a Christian? You could probably tell me. And then if I asked you, okay, well, what does your life really look like? Not at your best moments, right, but at all your moments. If we're honest, we're going to say, oh, well, I, I do fall short. I want to remind you that the reason I'm telling you this is not to say if you have some inconsistencies, here's what you need to do. Fix a couple inconsistencies, and then God will call you a Christian. That is the opposite of what I'm telling you to do. And here's why. We just studied Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. What do Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 tell us about how to be saved? Is it by trying a little harder or doing a little bit better? No, not at all. In fact, how do we get saved? We go to God, and he saves us. We ask him to change us. We ask him for forgiveness and to make us into a Christian and to change our hearts, and we trust in him, and he does that. Okay? And then he goes, he takes us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Uh, Ephesians 2, remember it says that by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of your works. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. So that none of us can stand up and boast and say, I became a Christian by being a good person. Right? So the point of this, I don't want you to miss this point. Some of you will miss this point. So I'm, this is red lights flashing, warning. Do not miss what I'm trying to say here. I'm not trying to say, pinpoint some ways, fix a couple things, and then God calls you a Christian. That's not how the Bible works. You get, you get called a Christian first after you repent and trust in God and say, my whole life's going to be for you, Jesus. And then he transforms you. And for this point, I'm talking to the people who have been transformed and are growing and have taken their first steps in the Christian faith and are continuing to walk. That's what this point's all about. The scales is the idea of walking worthy. Um, does your life balance out with the calling to be a Christian? Um, we all fall short in some ways, but the reality is I want to remind you that some people fall so short uh, that there's no way that they can actually honestly say that their life has been transformed. Right? And this is the hard part about a text like this. Because James chapter 2, verse 14, says things like this. Uh, what good is it, my brothers, if you say that you have faith, but you don't have works along with that faith? Can that faith save him? The idea is like, people live in two different types of faith. One type of faith is the saving faith, where we really trust in God and he really changes us. But there's another type of faith that so many people have. And my guess is a lot of people in this room have. A faith that all that means is that they, they feel like, okay, they've talked to God, and they feel like they know God's there, and they know he's there to back them up, but they don't trust in him for salvation. They, they trust in their good works, and he says, that faith can't save you because your works aren't good enough. It just will never save you. Even if you today became the best person on the planet and you never sinned again, the problem is, which you can't do that, but the problem is uh, you already blew it in the past. Right? You need someone to cover all your sins. Jesus can take care of that. And that's what this is all about. Trust in him first. But if you look at your life, and honestly, if you go through this point and you think, you know what, there's no consistency. Right? You're talking about gaps. It's not just gaps, Pastor John. It's like none of my life looks like Christ. None of it. My actions, my attitudes, my words. Well, then I want to point you back to Ephesians 2 to say what you need to do is repent of that, trust in Christ, 
and he'll save you. He doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't say no. It says anybody who comes to him with a broken and a contrite heart, God will not despise. So it doesn't matter how bad you think you are, if you think you're the worst person in the room and that God would never forgive you. I don't believe that, and God does not believe that. And in fact, God takes sinners, even the worst of them. Okay? That's where I want to direct you. If through this point you're like, dude, my life doesn't look anything like that. But let's think about it. What does it mean to walk worthy? Well, the Bible says a lot about this. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible talks about this. In Psalm 8611, I'd love for you to write that down. Psalm 8611, here's what it says. This is a, a, a worship song. He says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in truth, like my lifestyle. I'm making true actions. I'm doing uh, things that are true. My relationships are good. They're right. It says, unite my heart to fear your name. Right? It's like uh, the Bible says that we live out of our heart, so everything we do, it's because we have heart motives that want us you know, to do things like that. The words you say, they come out of your heart. They're not accidents. They're not your parents' fault. They're your fault, right? Your bad actions, they're not someone else's fault. It's because of your heart, right? The bad things I've done, it's because my heart is sinful and I've acted out of my heart, right? So here's what he says. Unite my heart to fear your name. My heart goes in a lot of different directions like yours does, right? You want to be liked. You want to be popular. You want your family to like you. You want a lot of things. You want to be successful. You want to go to a good college. You want to be seen as smart or pretty or whatever. And your heart goes in all these different directions. And here's what this says. It's a prayer to God. Please, God, have my heart focus on one thing. Unite my heart to fear God, to love you, to care about God first. Right? We all need to pray that. And that's what this is all about. That's what it means to walk worthy, to care first and foremost about pleasing God. The New Testament also talks about this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 talks all about this. Listen to this. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So same scales idea, right? Your life matching the gospel of Christ this time. So that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, right? Paul writes to this church, he's like, hey, I, I want to I hear of your reputation. Even if I never come back and even if I never see you again, I just want to hear about you. What does he want to hear about them? Well, that they would be standing firm in one spirit, being united as a church, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So I want to remind you, what's the result of our ministry, our church, or any church where we're focused on walking worthy? What happens? We get closer. We're united. Right? Clicks start breaking up. Divisions start going away. When we are caring first and foremost about walking worthy, we get more united if all of us are on the same page about this. And we'll strive side by side. We'll be doing what God wants us to do. But it doesn't happen if we're not unified. And we're not unified if we're not walking worthy. Paul says this, Colossians 1.10. He prays for these people. He says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So if you want two ideas for what it looks like to walk worthy, it's those two ideas, Colossians 1.10. Bearing fruit in every good work, right? Having good external things that you're doing for people, you're loving people better, your humility is good, like you're serving other people, you're caring for your family members, you're doing those good external things, and on the inside, what's happening? Well, I'm increasing in my knowledge of God. Not just my knowledge of a Bible verse that says something about God, but my actual close intimate relationship with God himself, that that's growing stronger. Because those two things are always connected, right? Your internal life and your heart and your growth with God and your external, right? If you just have external, no internal, you're what's called a hypocrite, right? You're two-faced. You're not really right with God. Those both have to go together. 
Paul writes it again in 1 Thessalonians 4, which if you know the book of Thessalonians, like they're the good church, right? Uh, Thessalonians get all this praise from Paul. Paul's like, you guys are great. You guys are amazing. And he encourages them. It's uh, actually the Corinthians that always get the, you know, the short end of the stick. Paul's always correcting them. And at the Thessalonians, he's always praising, right? Here's what he writes to the Thessalonians. This is chapter four, verse one. He says, finally then, brothers, we ask and we urge, just like what he used in Ephesians 4.1, in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, do so more and more. What he tells them is, hey, you guys are walking worthy. You're doing a good job, right? You're fighting sin. You're being united as a church. Here's my encouragement to you. Keep going. Keep striving. Keep growing. And that's my encouragement for many of you. Many of you are walking worthy, right? Maybe not perfectly, but you're, you're growing and you're striving. And you're, and you're like, just like Eden, taking steps, falling sometimes, yes, but making a good progress towards what God calls you to do, right? Here's my encouragement to you. Keep going. Keep taking steps in the right direction. That's great. Don't stand and look back and say, oh, man, you know, I have only grown so much in this amount of time. No, keep going. Just keep growing. Don't focus on what's happened in the past. Just keep going forward. That's my encouragement to you. That's what he says to the Thessalonians. I want you to ask yourself a question in point number one this morning. Um, I want you to ask yourself this. Is your, is my profession of faith, my claim to be a Christian, is that confusing to non-Christians? Here's what I mean by that. Do non-Christians look at you, they find out you're a Christian, and it's like a surprising thing. Like, oh, wow, you're a Christian? Wow, because it seems like, I mean, you seem like you're just doing and saying and talking and doing all the things that we do. Wait, I thought you guys were like about doing, you know, all the right things. And I just feel like if you're a Christian, you know, your life would look different than mine. I mean, think about that. If some of you went out and started to tell people you were a Christian, a lot of people might be surprised, right? And that's a question I want you to think. Um, would people be surprised if you told them you're a Christian just simply based on the way that you live? Right? Um, and I'm not talking about false notions people have of Christians, like that all, all Christians are unloving or all Christians I don't care. I'm not talking about that. I'm just saying, would they be surprised? Like, well, you don't live like a Christian. You don't talk like a Christian. I thought Christians were, you know, supposed to you know, say nice things. I thought Christians were supposed to be kind. I thought Christians were supposed to not cuss. I thought Christians were not supposed to do all the same things that I do. If they said that about you and they're surprised, that's a problem. That shows a discrepancy. That's why point number one is all about this, walking worthy, closing the gap. And P- Peter told a story once uh, about these people in the church. This is 1 Peter 3. Um, he talked to this group of ladies in the church who were married to non-Christians. And I want you to imagine how hard that would be right? Imagine you're a lady here, you're following Christ, but you had a husband who didn't like God, who hated God, right? Some of you come from families where maybe one parent loves God, the other parent doesn't love God, okay? That's kind of what was going on in this church, okay? And here's what he says to these ladies. He says, likewise, ladies, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, right? Even so that some, they're not Christians, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Like some of these ladies can make such an impact on their husbands if only their lifestyle was righteous and pure and doing what was right. And then the husbands start looking at the wives and say, wow, I mean, there's something different about you. You, you are really, you know, you're really pure, you're really excellent. You're, you're serving really well. You, you've, I mean, even your respect is just through the roof. There's something different about you, right? And it's supposed to make these husbands go back to God 
and say, well, it must be God in this, in this person. Um, that's what we want, is my point, in bringing that passage up. We want you to be a high school student who is looked at by other people and say, wow, they're very different than me. Um, and that can be a good or bad thing, right, depending on how their view of Christians. But you want it to be such a thing that says, you know what, you can start to win some of these people, even without a word, just by your righteous conduct because of how good of a friend you are, how you don't gossip and you don't backbite and you're loyal and you care about people and your love is just evident to them. They know that you love them. Um, that's all good. It's bad when we don't do that. Point is, I want you to identify whatever shortcomings or inconsistencies. If you're a Christian, identify what those things are. Right? What am I doing? What am I saying? What group of people am I around that I'm acting like a non-Christian? Right? Maybe we do that to fit in. Maybe we do that because we just want them to like us. I just want you to be careful. You need to find those inconsistencies and say, I want to live more like Christ. Um, you might say, where does that idea come from, living more like Christ? Well, um, if you look down back in your passage, look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. He gives these qualities and these things that these people are supposed to do. And I want you to notice something about them. Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. I just want you to focus on that, that one verse. You know what's interesting about this is all of these qualities and characteristics, all of them, are used in the Gospels to describe Jesus' care and his love and his patience and his gentleness for his people. Like all of these are character qualities that Jesus shows like nobody's business. So that's a simple way of thinking about it, living like Christ, but I want you to write out what these words are for point number two. I want you as a Christian to develop humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Those four things. That's what verse number two is all about. I know this is a list, right? but I want us to think these things through one by one. What does it mean to develop humility? What does it mean to develop gentleness? What does it mean to develop patience? What does it mean to develop love? Humility, what does that mean? Well, humility basically means this, that you're thinking less of yourself and that you're thinking of yourself less often. Okay? Here's what I mean. Some of you might think you're humble because you're self-deprecating. What I mean by that is... Uh, in a situation, you might say, oh, you know, I'm, I'm the worst on the team. You know, I'm just not very good. And some, some of you say that so that people will look at you and say, no, you're not. You're just so good. You're just so talented. You're so amazing. Like, no, I'm just the worst. I'm just the worst. It's like, but if the real motivation behind that is you want everybody to start a compliment fest for you, right? It's not humility, right? That's fake humility. That's really pride cloaked in humility, right? Humility is thinking of yourself less. Some of you Right? You know the perfectionists among us, right? You call people, I'm a perfectionist. You know, just the reason this report has to be good is just because I'm a perfectionist, okay? Can I, can I tell something to you, perfectionists? Um, you understand what drives that is not necessarily a, a pursuit of excellence, but really it's a pride that you think that everything that comes out of your computer, all of your assignments have to be perfect because, of course, you're perfect, right? That's just pride. Right? Don't tell me that that's humility just because, oh, I just want to be really good. No, well, that's, a lot of that's pride. It's not humility. It's the opposite of humility. Right? Humility with your schoolwork looks like this. You working as hard as you can, doing what you can do, taking the test, whatever it is, doing a good job, and accepting whatever the results are. And realizing that you're not perfect and you're not going to be perfect, so stop acting like you're going to be perfect and getting so upset when you're not. Where does that come from? It comes from pride. Right? Some of you think that's a, a humble attitude. It's not a humble attitude. It's it's just humility, uh, it's just pride cloaked in humility. 
some verses for you to write down. First Peter chapter five, verses five to seven. Um, this is a great passage for us. It feels like it's written to the high schoolers in the church or the college students. It says this, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So he just got finished talking about the pastors and the older people in the church. So now he directs it towards the young people. Um, be subject to them, right? Which is an odd sentence, right? Uh, what does that mean, be subject to? It means like respect, honor, even sometimes be obedient if that's what it calls for in the moment, right? If, you, if your leader tells you to, hey, cut it out, that you cut it out. Um, if your parents tell you, hey, I don't want you to do this, for you to say, of course, yes, of course, and to not fight back, right? Um, that sounds like crazy for a high school student to do, to just be like, oh, you don't want me to do that? Okay, cool, yeah. I just want to honor you. I just want to do whatever you want me to do. So, of course, I, I won't. I, I won't stay out later. I'll, it's totally fine. I want to honor you, right? That's like countercultural, right? But that's humility, right? He goes on. He says, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. And then he talks to everybody. Then he talks to the whole church. He's not picking on any age group now. He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, whether you're old, young, whatever you are, clothe yourself with humility, towards one another. For, and then he quotes the Old Testament here, he reminds us of something, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Right? Some of us act like God will only you know, bless your life if you act like a proud person. This says God opposes the proud. Right? You, you know, read in the Daily Bible reading, remember reading the book of Isaiah? One of the, my favorite passages in the book of Isaiah is when God says that I am and there is no other. I'm the Lord, there's none besides me. Two chapters later, Babylon, you know what they say? I am, and there is no other. I won't be moved. Nobody can take me off my pedestal. That comes right after God said that about himself, and then he says all these sinners, they do it, and then God has to come in and say, you guys don't even realize what you're doing. You're proud. You, get, you need to get knocked down. The reality is some of us, if we're not careful, we start thinking like that. We think that God will just bless you or do whatever is good for you just because you want it. Right? Careful. That's pride. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Right? If you have an attitude problem with your parents, if you have an attitude problem with your teachers or your coaches or with your small group leader, do you know what it should always go back to? You humbling yourself before God. The moment you humble yourself before God, all this changes. Your relationship with your parents changes if you're humble before God. Why? Because you remember God is sovereign, God is in control, God put you in the family he did for a reason, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to honor my parents. God put me in this school, he wants me to be in this classroom, so I, it's my responsibility to honor my teachers. Right? God put me in this small group, with this small group leader, so I need to honor, right? I need to respect, I need to obey. Right? Why? Because God. Once you're humble before God, the rest of these things get fixed. Just humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. If what you think that means is just to stuff all your emotions in a bottle and say, no, I'm never going to think about it. I'm just going to be humble. No, he doesn't say that. Just take your emotions, take your anxieties, and cast them on God because he cares for you. One person said, God's shoulders are bigger and stronger than yours. Yours cannot handle all your anxieties and all your cares, but God's can. You can take your burdens and cast them on God. That happens with humility. Next word, gentleness or meekness. Um, some people think gentleness or meekness is, is a really, um, I don't know, an, an effeminate, weak, um, little, you know, I don't know what you think of with gentleness. Um, I mean, how you have to be with a baby. Like, okay, um, 
it's not exactly like that. Gentleness or meekness, here's what it's talking about. It's talking about power under control. You taking your power, your abilities, and then having the self-control to direct them to the most productive end for the people you're helping. Right, so I guess that is if you were with you know, Eden or one of these other babies that are running around, you should be gentle. Right? That doesn't mean you, know, you lose all your strength and you melt and you're like, oh. Right? It means how are you gentle? Well, it takes a little bit of strength to pick them up and to hold them carefully. It doesn't mean a lack of power. It means you take the power that you have, you subject it, you keep it under control for the best end of the person you're dealing with. Right? That's what gentleness is. It's not weakness. It's funny, I was obviously studying this this week, and I came across a definition for this word in a very scholarly, like extremely scholarly source. Um, it's, a, it's a Greek dictionary called BDAG, right? That's like a super scholarly um, resource. And I came across a definition that I thought was funny because it sounded a lot like what I said a couple of weeks ago. Remember the phrase, get over yourself? And I made you guys write it down and you know, underline it. Okay, um, that wasn't because I was trying to be mean. It was just like, that's what the text is talking about. Do you want to hear this like extremely scholarly source talk about what the word gentleness means? Okay, I'm going to tell you. You don't have to say anything. I'm just going to tell you. Um, Here's what it says. Meekness or gentleness is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance. Guys, I feel like that's just a scholarly way of saying get over yourself, okay? I was reading this and I was thinking, that's just get over yourself, right? It's just in smart language, right? Let me read it again. The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance. Guys, get over yourself, right? It's just the cheap version. It's the McDonald's version of, you know, the Kobe beef version of whatever this is, right? Uh, It's the same thing, but that's what gentleness is. Here's a verse for you to write down with gentleness. Uh, Proverbs 16.32. Proverbs 16.32 says this. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules over his spirit is better and more mighty than the one who can take a city. Right? The idea of a person going into a city and taking it over by himself, that's a powerful man. That's a strong person. He says, you know what's better and stronger and takes more work? For your ability to rule over your emotions and your feelings and to not act out and not to ruin everybody that you're around. And that's what we do, right? When we live out of our feelings and our emotions, we just like, we just, you know, mess up everybody around us. I imagine it's like, um, I don't know, it's like taking the ketchup bottle and it's like just spraying at everybody. You know the gross vinegar that comes out at the beginning, right? You got to shake it up. You've seen that meme, right, of, you know, squirting out the ketchup and all that comes out is the vinegar. You seen that? Okay. Speaking meme language, right? That is, that's hilarious, right? It's gross, but it's real. Um, here's what I imagine. Maybe this is my imagination. Maybe it's weird. But when you live out of your heart and you have no gentleness, it's like you're just taking, you know, that, that, um, <laughs> that ketchup and you're just like squirting everybody around you. It's just spraying it out to everybody. And you're affecting everybody. And you don't care about who it touches because you're just getting that ketchup out of the bottle, right? Okay, that's, that's the, the opposite of gentleness. That's the opposite of self-control. Now, it's kind of a gross image. Um, you know, ketchup is a lot better on things than it is by itself. Uh, one time I was playing a, a game, a youth camp game, sidebar, uh, and it was like you had to choose a gross thing to eat you know, and this is why, by the way, you'll never see a, a gross game in True North because I don't like gross eating games. I don't know if you ever noticed that. You'll never see that here because um, I'm, I'm a easily grossed out person with food. So uh, what we had to do was like you had to take a cracker and then you put like 
all these different ingredients, like relish and honey mustard and all, all these different sauces. And I'm like, no, I'm not doing that. You know, and it was like musical chairs, so it landed on me. So I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Um, and then they're like, well, why don't you just like take a spoonful of ketchup? And I'm like, yeah, I could do that. I mean, that's better than like the, the cracker with honey mustard and relish. And I'm like, I'll just do that. It was the grossest thing ever. Don't, it's like, it's worse than Tide Pods, okay? You take a spoonful, you take one spoonful of ketchup, it will change your life. You will never want to do it again. Well, don't do a Tide Pod either. But um, I think ketchup is just as bad. So that's a side note. What was I saying? Don't spray ketchup on everybody and get everyone all messed up with your feelings and emotions. Yeah. There you go. That's gentleness. Next one. Third one, patience. What does patience look like? Uh, patience literally means to have a long fuse. It's actually two words you put together. One of them means a long time, and the other one means to get hot. Like, it means it takes a long time to get hot. It takes a long time to get angry. Um, having a long fuse. Suffering long is what some old translations say. Long suffering. The ability for you to be treated wrong, for your friends to not like you, for you to feel bad, and for you to have a long time before you act out or get angry or things like that. God is patient. He's described as patient. Romans 2.4 says that he's so patient and he's so kind to us that he did not punish us right away in our sin. It says, do you, this is Romans 2.4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? Not knowing, not remembering that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. If God were to act like you, every time you sin, if God were to act like you, act like when people sin against you, Right? How quick would God be to forget about you, to ruin you? He'd be so quick. Right? Think about how quick we are. When, when, when someone sins against us, we say, I can't, I can't be in their small group because they've sinned against me. It's like, don't you know what the Bible says? It says you're going to be sinned against. It says you've got to forgive one another. Oh, well, you know, I don't talk to those people anymore because, you know, uh, they, 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 they made fun of me and uh, they didn't apologize. Right? Well, Welcome to the church, right? That's just what's going to happen. But what needs to happen is the unity that we're talking about. Patience is the ability to suffer long, right? God was so patient with you. God was so patient with you. Think about it. Uh, those of you who are Christians, how many times did God convict you of your sin? Did you know that you needed to be saved? And, and God allowed you to reject him. Remember that. How many times? Probably dozens of times. Some of us, hundreds of times. And it's like we kept rejecting God, we kept pushing him back, and look what he did. He was patient. He saved you. And then, then when you did come to him, did he say, ha, 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 I told you so, I told you so, I told you so? No. He said, yeah, you're saved, you're forgiven. He took all your sins. He cast them behind his back. He, he cast them into the heart of the sea, as Micah 7 says. He's patient. What we need is patience, especially when we're dealing with other people. Paul said this in 1 Thessalonians 5. He was talking to people who were helping others in the church. He says, we urge you, brothers, to admonish the idle. So there's people in the church that were not working. So he says, everybody needs to have a job. Everyone who's able, they need to do work. They need to do things. And then he says, also, encourage the faint-hearted. So there's people in your church that are brokenhearted. There's people in your church that are down and sad. He says, encourage those people. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. There are people in a church that are weak that really just need a person to be with them. Okay? And then it says, and be patient with them all. Do you know what you're going to need to deal with? With other people in the church, you're going to need patience. 
You can't be an explosive person. You can't be a person who freaks out when someone wrongs you. You've got to be patient. Develop humility, gentleness, patience. And the last one is love, okay? Bearing with one another in love. What does that look like? Well, bearing with means to put up with. But not just to put up with, with your arms crossed, so to speak. To put up with people in love means that you're making a conscious decision that when people sin against you, and and make this decision even before people sin against you. Say, if this person wrongs me, I'm going to choose to love them anyway. If this person in my small group, if they, if they say something again that just hurts my feelings, I'm going to choose, before they even do that, I'm going to choose to love them and to put up with that in love. Not just to put up with it and say, oh, just tolerate it. I'm here for, you know, I'm only here for an hour, so I, got it. I can leave right after. No, to tolerate it and put up with it in love because you love them. That's really hard because a lot of times when we define love, here's what we usually mean. A good feeling that we have that we send back to someone when they're good to us right? A good feeling we want to send to them when we feel like they love us back. That's not what the biblical definition of love is. Love is a decision beforehand that I'm going to do good to somebody, regardless of what they do. I'm choosing to do good, right? Uh, That's why many of you, you're going to get married one day, and you're going to, you know, stand up, and you're going to say, you know, I choose to love you, embrace you, and I'll never leave you, right? And, And you will say that, and you will not know all of what your future entails, but what you'll decide is I'm going to do good to you for the rest of my life. And even if times are hard, and even if I don't feel like you love me back the same, I'm going to continue to love you. Right? That's what some of you are going to do. Others will, will stand up and they will say that, but they will not mean that. And then there will be dissolving of that relationship because they didn't really mean that. They didn't really mean that they would love and honor and protect for the rest of their life. One of the two sides didn't mean it. Or maybe for some cases, both didn't mean it. Um, what God calls us to do is choose to love beforehand. The passage I want you to write down is Colossians chapter 3. You don't have to turn there, but Colossians 3.12 says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones who are holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts. Put on compassionate hearts. When you hear that, you might sound, that might sound like, um, oh, so just be fake. Right? Just like put it on, put it off. Right? Put your love on and put it off. No, he says, put on compassionate hearts, what does that mean? That means you are choosing, as a Christian, I'm going to love the other Christians here. I'm going to put up with them, even if I don't like all that they say, even if, even if what they do is annoying to me, even if their interests are completely different than mine. Right? Maybe you're, you're someone who's into sports, and this is hard for you dealing with someone who's not into sports. And you just got to say, I'm going to love them anyway. Right? So those of you who are gamers or, or really smart, right? it's going to be hard for you to choose to love some people in your group that you can look down on because like, you're smarter than them or you're better at something than them, or you're musical and they're not. You've got to choose ahead of time. Regardless of their interests, I'm going to choose to love them. Put on compassionate hearts. Right? Compassion means that you care for them. You feel for them. You think, man, I want to think from their perspective. Right? I want to think about their hurts and their pains. I want to care about that because you know, that's hard for us to do naturally. We only, we're usually just thinking about our cares and our pains. Compassion means I'm going to you know, get in, in their heart real quick and think, man, this must be really hard for them with what they're going through. I mean, what's going on with their parents, that's really hard. I need to be compassionate with them. I need to be more patient. Um, I'm so quick to just get upset at them, but I, I, I wasn't even considering the hard things that they're going through. Some of you, compassion is going to look like you saying to even the non-Christians in your life. You've got to realize, look, they, just, they don't follow God, so why do you expect them to treat you well? Right? They're, they're constantly mistreating God. Why do you expect to be treated well by them? 
It's just going to take compassion, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. Like, if you got complaints against somebody in the church, here's what you should do. Forgive, right? That's what he's telling us. Colossians 3. All of it ends up going to this. Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Um, that means it's like, what's making the decision about my actions? The peace of Christ. That's going to rule. That's going to be in charge. Right? That, that's going to be the head of whatever the organism that we got going on in the rest of my life. It's going to be the peace of Christ. That's going to make the decisions. That's why point number three, back in our passage, if you look at Ephesians 4.3, it says, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Um, point number three, I'd love for you to write this down. Make every effort to keep your church united. Make every effort to keep your church united. This passage does not tell you that your responsibility as a Christian, it does not say this. This is what it does not say. It does not say that your responsibility as a Christian is to create unity or to make it. Like, like you don't have to say, all right, I'm going to come up with a name for my friend group, and we're going to be, we're going to be called uh, the squad, we're going to be called the clique, we're going to be called this, we're going to be called such and such a family, and you're the dad, and you're the mom, and you know, we're not doing that, okay? You've all tried that, right? It fails, right? Uh, my point is, it's not your responsibility to make unity and then surround everyone around like something that you came up with. Here's why I say that. Because the book of Ephesians says that Jesus, for Christians, he's the one that made the unity. Remember chapter two. Remember, he's the one that through his cross, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile and any other group of people that don't like each other. Through the cross, he broke that down so that we'll be united. So who created the unity? Jesus created the unity. That's why those of you in this room who have nothing in common with each other, some of you have nothing in common with some of your friends, You don't like the same things, you're interested in different things, but you're united because you both love Christ first. He united you. Here's what the text tells us to do. See it written down. You already wrote it on your page. Ephesians 4, 3 says it. Your job is to keep or to maintain the unity. Early on in our marriage, I forgot to do something and it was kind of bad. Basically, there was a situation in the garage where there was a leak. Um, And our our apartment kind of sits over three garages. And uh, over our garage, there was a leak. And I didn't really know what to do about it. I was just like, oh, man, there's a leak. Uh, I should probably, uh, you know, call the, the landlords and stuff. And, and I just forgot that day, right? And just, you know, forgot. And then I came back home, and I'm like, oh, man, there's, there's some water on the ground. Oh, I forgot there's a leak. Uh, I'm just going to park outside. So then I parked outside, and I just went about my next day doing my normal thing, and I just was busy, right? I think it was, remember, it was during, uh, like, Thanksgiving break, so I think I would like went away for a day or two and just kind of forgot about it, right? I came back to the garage and I'm like, oh no, I forgot. There's a, there's a big leak here, but it wasn't a huge leak. It was just like drip, 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 right from the ceiling. And you're like, oh man, that's a problem. Is that you know, the laundry machine? We had no idea what it was. Turns out it was a old copper pipe that had a pinhole leak, just super small. And it was just constantly just a tiny, tiny little stream of water coming out. When I told the landlords that I hadn't told them for four or five days, they were not happy. Let's just put it like that. Like, you're telling me there's been a leak for four days and you didn't, you didn't even think to call us? And I was like, well, it's busy. You know, just, just a little leak, right? You know what they had to do? 
they had to literally cut out with one of those uh, drywall saws, they cut out the entire ceiling of our garage. They had to like replace the whole ceiling. They did all the pipes. They redid all of it, literally just because of one tiny pinhole leak. And it wasn't a big deal. It wasn't like those things that you've seen. Have you ever seen those videos where like the entire ceiling collapses because there's all this water, right? It was not like that. It was just a little bit, but it ruined everything. It ruined all the, the, the drywall up top because I just didn't do anything about it. I thought it was a small thing. They thought it was a big thing. They were right. I was wrong. Here's my point. Uh, some of us in this room right now do not think that the little things we do that cause disunity, we don't think they're that big of a deal. We don't think that the gossip is that big of a deal because it's just a small thing. And I just told one person. Some of us think, yeah, you know, the bitterness, I'm just bitter towards one person. I mean, yeah, I've told 10 people, but like, I'm just bitter to one person. It's not like I have like a bunch of enemies and we think that our little disunity is small. Can I tell you something? God thinks that disunity in our church or in any church is a massive deal. I wanna give you some passages that prove that. Okay, one of them, or two of them rather, come in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4.26, so later on in our passage, we're gonna get there soon. It says that when we're not unified, what we're doing is we're giving a foothold or an opportunity to the devil. So like when you gossip, every time you gossip, every time you cause disunity or you, you, you share a secret that you shouldn't have shared that kind of makes your friend look at that other friend differently, that kind of puts you in a positive light and that other person in a bad light, you're like giving Satan a foothold, right? Some of you are rock climbers, right? Nick's a rock climber. What you need there is you need footholds, right? You need little things that come out that you can stick your foot on and climb up. That's what you're doing to the devil in our church when you gossip, when you share secrets when you purposely cause disunity. Uh, it also says, three verses later, four verses later, Ephesians 4.30, that when we cause disunity, we are grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Like when we do things and say things that we shouldn't, what are we doing? We're bringing sadness to God. That's why in three different places, Paul commands the church to be unified. One time he does that is in 1 Corinthians. I told you earlier, they were the church that was always messing up, and their main problem was division, disunity. There's like different groups in the church that were following different leaders and they didn't like the people in the other groups. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10 says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you and that you would be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's what we need for every local church, right? Whether you're a big church or a small church, you need to be focused on the same thing. You need to have the same mind. You need to be going the same direction. You can't be believing vastly different things. I know in every church, there's, there's little differences and things that, that Christians believe, and that's okay, but you can't have you know, two people that have like a totally different view of the gospel. They just won't work in the same church. They, they need to be you know, in different groups. And he says, as one church, you need to be united. Paul says this in Romans 16, 17. Romans 16, 17, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division, and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Then he says, avoid them. Avoid them. Don't spend time with them. Stop giving them your ear. Stop listening. Stop going to that small group if what they're doing is they're constantly trying to create division. He says, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, but they serve their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, flattery is they say nice things about you that aren't true. They deceive the hearts of the naive, right? It's a rare word in the Bible. The word naive doesn't come up very much, but it, it means to, to, to not know. It's like 
these people who cause divisions, they come in and they always are going for the weakest Christians. They're always going for the people that don't know as much. They're always going for them, right? Or people who have weak character and they're capturing those people and they're turning them against the rest of the church. So here's what he says about division. Uh, people causing division, avoid them. That's strong language. Like you, would, you probably wouldn't tell a Christian to do that. If you said, oh, someone's causing division, you probably wouldn't say avoid them. Paul says, if it's a big deal like this, this divide in the church, you need to avoid them. Listen to what he says in Titus. Right? This is, he's telling Titus how to set up the churches on the island of Crete. And in Titus 3.10, he says, As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and warning him twice, have nothing more to do with him. Like, again, this practically working out in our church is going to be different. Uh, not different than what this says. But, you know, you, as a person in a small group, you don't have the right to say, okay, you know what, you're kicked out of small groups, right? Um, so I understand that, you know, if someone causes division, it's not like, all right, yeah, I just decided, Titus 3.10 says, I got to kick you out, so sorry. I mean, you're just a jerk, so you're gone. You're gone. Go kick rocks, right? You can't, can't do that, right? Um, how this works in the church is described in Matthew 18, is that when people are causing division, you got to bring it to the leadership, and then we got to warn them once, we got to warn them twice, just like he's saying, because remember, he's talking to a pastor here, and then he says, after that, if they're not going to listen, if they're not going to repent, if they're not going to stop causing division, this is such a serious problem that they need to be cut out of the church just like my ceiling that was um, all rotten with the water damage. I know that sounds intense, but God cares that much about unity in this church or in any other church. Um, we're not doing small groups this week on this, although I wish we would. Uh, we're talking about true men and true women, but I got a passage I want you to write down that you actually see in your small group questions, uh, your application questions. James three thirteen through 4, 3. It's a, it's a kind of a long section, but I want to encourage you this week. I want you to work through all the characteristics that he talks about. He says, you know, true wisdom from God, it, it creates unity. It creates uh, peace and love. It doesn't create division. Then he says in chapter 4, here's what causes division. When your passions are at war within you. When you want something, or you want a relationship, and you can't have it, so you start backbiting against people who have what you want. Right? That's how this all falls apart. Because ultimately, what you do and how you walk worthy will affect the person sitting next to you. That's the bottom line of what he's trying to get at. You walk worthy, this church is going to be united. Reminds me, did anybody watch the, uh, the Panthers-Falcons game a couple weeks ago where uh, uh, DJ Moore, did you see this play at the very end of the game? DJ Moore caught a touchdown. It was a 70-yard pass. He caught it at the very end. There was like 20 seconds left in the fourth quarter. They were down by six. They, they scored this touchdown. The Panthers go crazy, right? With DJ Moore, wide receiver for the Panthers, he celebrates. He takes off his helmet, and he throws his helmet, okay? You don't think about the rules of football. You can't do that. It's an unsportsmanlike conduct penalty, and they take it on the extra point. So basically, it's like, oh, man, he shouldn't have done that, but whatever, dude. He just scored this crazy point at the end of the game. It's great. Whatever. Celebrate. We're just going to give it to the kicker. So the kicker, because of the penalty, has to kick a 48-yard field goal. Did you, any of you see this? Um, to win the game. So it's tied. It's tied 34-34. It's tied. He just, got, he just has to kick a, an extra point. Except the extra point is 48 yards, kind of, kind of a deep distance. So uh, he gets up, kicks it, misses. Okay. So they would have won the game. They've now tied. Now it's going into overtime. And they lost in overtime. <laughs> so if we're just going to retrace our steps real quick, yeah, DJ Moore, great catch. Great touchdown. Don't take off your helmet 
and chuck it and uh, get a penalty and have your team lose the game, right? Yeah, did he save the game? Kind of, yes. But did they lose the game because of him? Yes. And my point is, that's what happens when we're not unified. It's like we don't think it affects the rest of the team. We think it doesn't affect the rest of us. If we think our not walking worthy doesn't affect anybody else, we're crazy. It always will affect the rest of the church. If you walk worthy, that strengthens our church and our ministry. If you don't walk worthy, our ministry falls apart piece by piece. It's up to us what we're going to do. But we want to ask God right now to help us do that as we are dismissed right now. Let's pray real quick and ask God to help us with this. God, thank you how, for how clear your word is. Thank you that we don't have to guess at what the characteristics of a Christian look like. I pray that you would help us be more like you, that we'd express the characteristics of your son. I pray that that right now would actually help bridge some of the divides in our ministry, that if there's any people who have something against each other, that this morning that they would go and reconcile, that they'd uh, be willing to forgive and that forgiveness would be offered uh, and forgiveness would be granted this morning. Pray that you would continue to maintain the unity of this group. I'm so thankful for so many of them are doing such a good job contributing to the unity of uh, our church and of this ministry. Pray that we continue to do that. Um, grow us, help us walk worthy, and help us glorify you in everything. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.